The text appointed for the sermon is taken from the gospel. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Last week I was gone because I was officiating the wedding of Cullen Godbold with his bride, Sarah. And I've been to many weddings as a witness within, as a friend. I've been to several weddings in the actual wedding party. I've even been to one as the groom. Uh, But this was my first wedding as the priest, as the officiant. And it gave me a, a unique perspective. And all this week, I have been pondering and just thinking about this, uh, this wedding and the marriage that occurred. And hopefully, all weddings should have some sort of joy in them. Uh, but this one also had a great joy that I got to see from a unique perspective. Cullen and Sarah, they were really cute. Uh, they, they had a almost like an innocent nervousness about them. When they said their vows, they could hardly even look at each other. They were so happy. And Sarah, uh, when she turned to Cullen, just tears of joy were streaming down her face. And at the same point, there is this solemnness that came, knowing the type of vows that they were about to make with one another. And so seeing this, Uh, in the week, and hearing the liturgy again and again has really brought to mind some key things. You you know, our wedding liturgy says that marriage is an honorable estate, meaning it's it's a new state of being for those who are wed together. And it's important because, not just because it brings people together, but because it is the image of Christ's marriage with his church. That's what we say right in the beginning of the liturgy. We say, welcome everyone. By the way, this is an image of Christ's marriage to his church. It stands out. It's a little bit shocking. And then as we process through the liturgy, this liturgy that's expressing this marriage between Christ and his church, the groom comes and turns to his spouse and makes vows. And these are special vows in which one gives their entire being to the other for their own, for for the other's sake. Not for their sake, but for the other's sake. And the the vows express a whole life of marriage in which both spouses give themselves to the other. And the act of giving, it's an act of sacrifice, isn't it? As those of us who are married know, those vows become a life of sacrifice from the day of the wedding, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death. What a sacrifice. This isn't just a a contractual joining together, but this is a life lived out in unity through sacrifice. And the end of that marriage, well, one is kids, and then the second, Lord willing, and then the second is perfect unity between the husband and the wife. Perfect unity in a life of sacrifice. 
This is what Christ says, right? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. That's the type of unity. And so it's no wonder that our liturgy talks about the solemnization of holy matrimony to be our image of Christ and his church. And we find then, if we start looking at this, if we start seeing how marriage is the image of how God works with his people, we find it everywhere in the Bible. We find it even at the very end in Revelation where the, everything is led up to a marriage. This is in Revelation 19. St. John wrote, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. To her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, write this down, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true sayings of God. So here, at the end of our Holy Scripture, this is the consummation of all history. This is the purpose for which the whole act of redemption and creation was made. It's a marriage. It's a marriage between God and his people. And it's a feast to celebrate that marriage. And this is where the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, marries his bride, the church. And at the marriage, there is a grand feast. The Supper of the Lamb. Notice that those who attend, they wear special clothes. Fine white linen, which John explains. He, he helps us with this analogy. That's the righteousness of the saints. But it's not just in Revelation. This didn't just come in John's vision. If you look out throughout the whole Testament's Throughout in the Old Testament, the New Testament, spread throughout is God's working with his people, God's covenant with his people as seen as a marriage. Right? God starts making these covenants all the way back in Genesis, especially to Abraham, in which he makes the covenant. And then he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, uh, with land. I'm going to bless you uh, with, with generations, with seed. I'm going to bless you with a special blessing. And then your children will receive those blessings. And then his children, as they grow, they take vows at Sinai, vowing back to God to live out the life that God wishes them to live. This is the marriage. And when Israel fails to live out their vows, when Israel fails to be the faithful spouse, often you'll hear the prophets say that Israel was unfaithful. Israel is the unfaithful spouse. Do you see here? It's always thought in terms of marriage. And those who are unfaithful receive judgment. It doesn't mean that every single marriage is perfect. Those who are unfaithful receive the judgment. God vows to keep his marriage. And then he even reinstitutes it throughout Scripture. For example, in Jeremiah, uh, when he's talking about uh, uh, that God will bring them out of the land of Egypt, and he says, they broke my covenant, although I was a husband to them, but I will make another covenant 
where I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then in Isaiah, uh, we see this image of God bringing Israel out of danger, destroying all their enemies, bringing them to him, right, in the marriage, and then immediately instituting a grand feast. This is what Isaiah, it's a beautiful passage. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines and on the lees well refined. This goes on and on. You can find it throughout all of the Old Testament. And so this is why uh, when Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees about the kingdom of God as a wedding feast, Everyone knew what was going on. Everyone knew here that was present at Jesus' parable what he was talking about. That this is about a covenant of God. This is God working with his people. For this is the image of marriage that we see throughout the Bible. They know then that when Jesus brings up this image of the king and of his son and of the people, that Jesus is talking about them. Let's listen to what Matthew said. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Well, in the ancient world, uh, not going to a wedding was an incredible insult. And it's the insult because it's, it's saying to the king that he doesn't have honor enough for your presence at the wedding that he doesn't deserve your presence. Uh, and we know in certain contexts that uh, there are times when noblemen or kings would invite a whole town to a wedding. That happened a few times. And so for those not going to the wedding, those are the ones saying, we don't respect your lordship. Well, Jesus continues. He sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Well, now, this goes beyond just disrespect, doesn't it? This goes on to open rebellion. And the people are now rejecting the king himself. And they're asserting their power and dominion over the king. It's a reversal of, of the nature of things. It's a reversal of reality. Where now the king's servants are acting like a king. To the king directly. The end result is judgment for those who reject the invitation. But more reject the dominion of the king. They refuse to acknowledge the wedding at hand. And so when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He sent forth his armies, and he destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. The invitation now goes out, even beyond the initial list. We do need to be careful here, because this passage has been used 
in history to reject all of Israel. To say that God is casting out all of Israel, which is absurd, right? Because many of Israel did accept Jesus. There were at least 12 who were his apostles, right? But other than that, there are thousands that we have in record in the New Testament who were Jews who accepted their Messiah. So given then the context of Matthew 22, and if you read Matthew 22 in this kind of, uh, within the, the, the context of these three chapters surrounding it, this is when Jesus is having a kind of direct fight, a back and forth with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the ruling classes of Jews in Jerusalem. These are the ones who had rejected God's son and then on top of that sought to kill him. Those are the ones that Jesus is directly addressing. And so, when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Well, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing in teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus is noting here that even at the banquet, even being brought into the house of God, into his kingdom, they still may reject him. And not in this case by rejecting the messengers, but by rejecting the actual reality of the ceremony. This man wishes to feast without accepting the marriage, without accepting of where he's at, because he's refusing to put on a wedding garment. He obviously knew his intent, because he had no answer when the king asked him directly, where are your clothes? And so like the others, he is thrown out of the feast as well. Many are called but only few are chosen. And isn't that what we see throughout the gospel? Jesus calling Israel to his wedding feast, but many reject him, especially the leading Jewish sects in Jerusalem. And so this is why in the next chapter of Matthew, this is Matthew 23, Jesus warns uh, these leaders. Let me give you an example. He warns them with eight separate warnings just to get a sense of how tough these are. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of God against man. For you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. That's who he's speaking to here. And these are the warnings that Jesus is giving to the people right around him, and they all know to whom he is talking. But for us, when we read this passage today, the parable is still speaking directly to you. For the perfect marriage of God to his people has been affected through his son. It is actually done. The church is the bride of Christ, and she is in perfect union with her groom. For just as a husband and wife are married and then joined together and become one flesh, the church marries her groom, Jesus, and they become one body, his body, the very body of Christ. We have been made the bride of Christ through our baptisms, and now we pursue the righteousness that befits Christ's bride so that we may all come to the wedding feast, the supper of the Lamb. 
but here, here is where biblical imagery starts getting tangled. Or maybe it's better to say it starts kind of weaving together to create a deeper meaning. For the supper of the lamb, the lamb of the wedding feast, that supper is only possible through another supper, which is Passover. And so the Passover lamb, who is sacrificed for us, becomes our food upon which we feast at the supper of the lamb, where we as the bride now join the lamb, our groom, who now reigns supreme. Do you see how these are weaving together? That Christ as the lamb of God sacrificed himself for us. And then we feed upon that food at the heavenly banquet where Christ as the lamb now reigns supreme as the church's groom. And so at each mass, we are partaking in an eternal wedding feast in a temporal moment through this strange sacramental reality. We enter heaven itself. And this is why we say that coming to the mass physically is an essential part of the Christian life for we are acting out our union with our groom. In a sense, we're fulfilling the vows that we've made. And isn't this what Jesus says in John 6? He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me even shall live by me. You see, this action of union, of coming here to the table and eating the lamb, this action of union, we're not only declaring our union, we're actually learning something. We're learning and, and growing in the righteousness which we seek after. In the terms of the parable, it's like we're weaving our white robes as we learn through the Mass what it means to live as a bride of Christ. And isn't that what Paul's talking about in the epistle? Give thanks for all things unto God, even the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's the living out of this white linen of righteousness. In other terms, we, when we come to the Mass, we are learning about Jesus' life, which is a life of love marked by sacrifice. Just like marriage vows, which declare radical self-sacrifice, so is Jesus uh, acting out the self-sacrificial love and then giving himself to us. We, in turn, follow Jesus. And just like he said in Matthew 16, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Isn't, doesn't that kind of sound like the marriage vow of I am going to serve you. I am going to take up my cross to live for you. And so at the Mass, we learn this radical self-sacrifice because we're sharing in Christ's own saving sacrifice. It's like a school of sacrifice a school of charity, of what charity actually means. And by coming to the Mass, it's not just learning intellectually, but learning by your action, by doing it, by practicing it. And then that most perfect sacrifice, 
partaking of that will seep into the rest of our lives. So get ready now. Put on that white linen of righteousness and hold on to it. Wrap it around you and clutch it so that nothing pulls it from you. Make it part of your life. It's not an external thing, but it needs to grow into you, to become part of you. From the perfect sacrifice of the Mass, we learn. And then we let the Eucharistic sacrifice become part of our lives. God promises his assistant in that work, right? He has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And then we can join his great wedding feast for all eternity as Christ's bride. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise in redeeming the time. And come to this feast today, giving thanks to God for his sacrifice for us, his bride. Come and taste him so that you might live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.